Well, friends, as I already indicated, today is celebrated by many Christians as Resurrection Day. And I I would make clear that the Bible doesn't really command us to worship or to acknowledge the resurrection of Jesus on one particular day of the year, Um, even as it doesn't tell us to celebrate the birth of Jesus on one particular day of the year. But rather, every first day of the week, every Sunday, every what the Bible calls the Lord's Day is Resurrection Day. So we're really celebrating the resurrection of Jesus every first day, every Lord's Day that we gather. But as I noted earlier, the resurrection is such a foundational truth to our salvation, to our our eternity, that it certainly is worthy of a one-day-in-year special focus. And especially because people in the world, even though they call it Easter, have their attention called to this event of the resurrection I'm certainly obliged to go along with the tradition and preach about the resurrection on what is called Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. But what is the great significance of the fact that after being demonstrably dead, wrapped in linen cloth with many pounds of spices, and spending three days in a cold tomb, Jesus of Nazareth broke the bands of death, emerged from the tomb, and appeared to people alive from the dead, at one point appearing to 500 people at one time, and this over a period of 40 days. What is the significance of that? One great significance is that by raising his beloved son from the dead, God the Father was putting his stamp of approval upon the work that Jesus had come to do. And what was that work? Well, listen to it in his own words. Luke 19.10, where I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Or his words in Mark 10.45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Or hear it in the words of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Or those great words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is the gospel in a nutshell. He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came to pay for the sins of all who would put their trust in him alone. His death on the cross was the payment for sins. And what about the resurrection? It was God's receipt. Jesus made payment for our sins upon the cross, and by raising him from the dead, God was giving to you, believer, a receipt, saying, in effect, all your sins have been paid for in full by my son, and you owe nothing. The resurrection is the receipt for the payment made for the sins of God's people by Jesus. So the resurrection has everything to do with our present state as believers. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are in a state of being fully forgiven by God, being viewed as righteous by the perfectly holy God, not with the righteousness of our own, but with the righteousness of Jesus. That is, we call, the Bible calls, our justification. 
Again, Romans 4.24, he was raised because of our justification. And Romans 8.1 can say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the resurrection of Jesus has an implication for our present life being justified in God's sight. But another significance of the resurrection of Jesus has to do with our future state. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15.20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Last week, I brought a message on the subject of heaven. And I did so because I think it is timely for us because of what we are facing as a congregation. And the Bible says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And I noted that heaven is the place where God is. It is the place where Christ, still clothed in his human body, is. That is the immediate destination of the believer. When the believer dies, the believer his soul, her soul goes to heaven. Second Corinthians 8, 5, 8, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 1 that I'd rather depart from this body, from this life, and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. And so when a believer dies, they go into heaven and are there in a conscious, joyous, sinless, but a disembodied state, because heaven is not our final destination. Second Peter 3 and Revelation 21, which was read, indicates that our final destination is a new earth under a new heavens. When and where we will experience the resurrection of our bodies. And so concerning the resurrection of our bodies, I want to say three things this morning. I want to look at the fact of the resurrection of our bodies, the manner of the resurrection of our bodies, and the necessity of the resurrection of our bodies. First, the fact of the resurrection of our bodies. You may have heard me say, and perhaps you have said it yourself, oftentimes we say this when we're talking to unbelievers, we have a soul that will never die. A lot of unbelievers try to suppress that truth. They don't want to face the fact that they're going to die and they're going to face God in judgment. And so we try to impress upon them, you have a soul that will never die. And that is certainly true. We do have an inner person, a spirit that is immortal, imperishable, and it will live on in conscious existence. But friends, that's only part of the truth. Because not only will our souls or spirits live on forever, but we will have an eternal bodily existence as well. The Bible clearly teaches the doctrine of the resurrection of our bodies. There are actually two Old Testament texts that indicate that. Let me quote them to you. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of, of the dawn. And in Daniel 12, too, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But much more about the resurrection of our bodies is contained in the New Testament, as we might expect. And um, 
So concerning the fact of the resurrection of our bodies, I want to know two things, the grounds or basis of it and the timing of it. First of all, the grounds of our resurrection. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, and we will spend most of our time this morning in that passage, which is the fullest instruction about the resurrection that we have in the New Testament, in the whole Bible. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22, we see the grounds or the basis of our resurrection. Listen to those words. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep or have died. Now, there's a sense in which Jesus wasn't the first one to rise from the dead or from the grave, right? There were resurrections in the Old Testament. The prophet Elijah raised the Shunammite woman's son. Elisha, uh, rather, Elisha did. Elijah raised the son of the widow of Zarephath. There were resurrections performed by Jesus prior to his own resurrection. He raised the daughter of Jairus from the grave. He raised Lazarus. He raised the son of the widow of Nain. So there were resurrections prior to Jesus' resurrection. How is it that he is the first fruit? Well, they were raised, but they died again. Jesus was the first to be raised, never to die again. And so he is the type of our resurrection, because when we are resurrected in our bodies, we will never die again. But more than a type of our resurrection, Jesus is the ground or basis of our resurrection. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, or rather the Olivet Discourse, not the Olivet the Upper Room Discourse, in John 14, 19, after a little while, the world will, will no longer see me. Because I live, you will live also. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of our resurrection because as we saw, it is the basis of our justification. He was raised because of our justification. And for all those who are justified, their final salvation will be glorification, the resurrection of our bodies. Here's another text that shows that the resurrection of our bodies is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. You need not turn there. I'm just going to pass through. But in Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30, we read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So we are predestined by God, we who are believers, to be conformed to Jesus Christ, now notice, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So if we are going to be fully conformed to Jesus, we are going to be fully conformed to his glorification. And as he was raised bodily and received a new body, so will we. So believers will be resurrected from the dead because Christ was he said, because I live, you will live also. So much then for the grounds or basis of our resurrection based on the resurrection of Jesus. But when will this happen? What will be the time when we, you and I, believer, will receive a new resurrected body? Well, 
The first assertion, assertion as far as the time is that it will happen at the same time as the resurrection of unbelievers. And go back to that statement in Daniel 12, 2, which I quoted earlier. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. It seems to be coterminous. It seems to be the same event. These to everlasting life, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But an even more clear statement is in the New Testament. Look with me at John chapter 5, 28 and 29. And we're seeking to answer the question, we're going to get new bodies. When is that going to happen? It's not going to happen if you die now and go to heaven. You're going to be with Jesus, absent from the body at home with the Lord, but you're not going to be there with a, a new body. Not yet. When will you get your new body? When will I get my new glorified body? John 5, 28 and 29 further answers that question. When Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Notice those who did the good to a resurrection of life, that would be believers, and those who committed the evil, unbelievers, to a resurrection of judgment. Now, what I'm saying is that the resurrection of believers and unbelievers will be in the same event. It says, an hour is coming when there'll be a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. But some might say, but the word hour doesn't always mean a moment in time. It can mean a longer period. For example, look at the same text. John 5, 25, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's not talking about the resurrection of our bodies there. He's talking about people hearing the gospel and coming to new life by believing the gospel. And he's saying that's something that's going to begin soon and that will be going on throughout the whole New Testament age. That's happening now. You heard the gospel and you came alive by the grace of God. Likewise, in John 4.23, Jesus says to the woman at the well, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the, the Father in spirit and truth. Now that's an hour that's continuing. We're seeking to worship in spirit and truth today. Throughout the whole age, people are seeking to worship in spirit and truth. But the word hour, or the, rather, yeah, the word hour is also used of a particular moment in time even more frequently. In this same Gospel of John, John 7 and verse 30, Jesus says, so they were seeking, or it says, so they were seeking to seize him and no man laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. In John 8 and verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12 and verse 23, talking about this momentous hour, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that hour was the time of his suffering unto death. And that was a particular focused moment. So when Jesus says in John chapter 5, 
that there will be a resurrection of both the good and the evil in that hour. What's he talking about? Is he talking about a whole span of time, in which case there will be resurrections happening all the time throughout the New Testament age? I say no. He's talking about one momentous event. The resurrection of believers and unbelievers will take place in the same hour, the same event. They will all hear the same voice of the Son of Man. So if we ask, when is this going to happen? When are we going to get our new bodies? Part of the answer is it's going to happen at the same time that unbelievers are resurrected in their bodies to a different destiny than ours. I think further, and I'll just quickly mention this, in Acts 24, 14, and 15, the Apostle Paul says, but this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves. Then notice that there shall certainly shall be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. One resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. It points to the fact that this will be coterminous. This will be at the same time. But we need to answer that question further. When will we get our new glorified bodies? The fuller answer to that question, I believe, is clear in the New Testament, and that is at the second coming of Christ. And let me read some texts which indicate that. Keeping in mind that the resurrection of believers and unbelievers will happen in the same event, when will that happen? I submit to you, it is at the return of Jesus. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, very familiar words. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Here's the picture. The Lord descends and believers rise. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Notice, we're waiting for a Savior who will transform the body. Jesus comes and our bodies are transformed. And again, back to 1 Corinthians 15, 53. Christ the first fruits, those who are Christ's at his coming. And in John chapter 6, 39 to 40, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so, the fact of the resurrection of our bodies is indisputable. The basis of it is the resurrection of Jesus. He's the firstborn. He's the firstfruits. Because he lives, we will live too. When will this happen? At the return of Christ. And at that time, there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Now, why do I belabor that? Because there are some of our brothers and sisters who believe there will be separate resurrections. The believers here, the unbelievers here, I submit to you, based on John 5, that it will be one event 
when Christ returns, end of the age, resurrection of the bodies of believers and unbelievers alike. And so that's the timing of the resurrection of our bodies. But what about the manner of the resurrection of our bodies? And turn, please, and we'll be there for the rest of the time in 1 Corinthians 15. That is the fullest passage teaching us about resurrection in the Bible. And in that passage, verses 12 to 34, Paul first establishes the fact that believers will be raised from the dead. There will be a resurrection of believers. It is as certain as the fact of Christ's resurrection. In verse 13, we read, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. He's trying to establish believers are going to be raised. But if there is no resurrection, as some are saying, then Christ hasn't been raised. But then in verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. So the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead means that you, believer, will one day be raised from the dead. So he establishes the fact of Christ's resurrection. But then from verses 35 to 49, he explains the manner in which this resurrection will take place. Now, as often is the case, Paul is up against some detractors. There are some people in Corinth who are having a hard time believing the resurrection of the bodies of believers. Now, Corinth was in Greece. Greeks were influenced by Greek philosophers. And the Greek philosophers believed in the resurrection of the soul, but not the resurrection of the body. They actually viewed the body as a prison house of the soul. And so the prospect of resurrection of the bodies for the Greeks was not a very desirable thing. And so you have somebody kind of mockingly, at least in a cheeky kind of way, saying in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So Paul's dealing with here with, with some people who are doubting the reality of the resurrection. How, how's God going to do this? How is God going to raise people from the dead? And so, listen to 35 to 37. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He's pretty strong here. He says, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Now, to some degree, we can sympathize. Our bodies go to the grave. And they decay, and they become one with the soil. Other human bodies have been devoured by beasts. Other human bodies, I'm just reading Lenny Spitali has written a biography of Victorine, who uh, was one of the DuPonts, and she was a Christian, and talking about the development of the, 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 the um, dynamite and, and the powder, powder, powder plants down in Delaware. And on one occasion, there was an explosion, and I think 37 men were, were blown to bits. And there are bodies that are exploded. And you can see somebody's skepticism, like, we're going to have resurrected bodies? How is that possible? And so Paul begins here by explaining, look, look, you see this happening all around in nature. In nature, death gives way to life. And he calls attention to the fact that you have a seed that yields a plant. You look at that little seed. This bare, dry, dead-looking seed. It dies, it disintegrates in the ground. And what comes from it? A vigorous and nourishing plant. Could you have imagined that this little seed 
became that plant. And so what he comes to emphasize here now first is the discontinuity between our present bodies and our new bodies. And it basically, he goes on to say that by the power and creativity of God, God is able to give every body, every being, living and non-living, a body that fits its sphere and purpose. So listen to verses 38 and 39. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. He's defending the manner in which God is going to give us new bodies. And basically, he says, you have all these different seeds, and each, each seed yields a different plant. You look at those seeds, and they look fairly similar, but when they're planted and when they die and give life, you've got different stems, different leaves, different flowers, different fruit, right, from different seeds. And then he points to the fact that there are different bodies. Human beings have one body. Our body is very advanced. Unlike the animals, we walk upright. We have opposable thumbs. Obviously, we're unique because we're made in the image of God. And then you have the bodies of beasts. And God gives them what they need to exist in their particular habitat. Some have fur. Some have um, skin. I mean, we look at the deer in our backyard in the most frigid times of winter. This was not a cold winter, but it could be zero degrees. And they're out there lying down comfortably. We'd be dead. But God gives them fur. You watch the ducks and the geese, right? in freezing, almost freezing water. And they're very comfortable because of the down of their feathers. God gives birds feathers, and he gives them a beak so that they can get the food they need. He gives a woodpecker a certain skull formation so it can peck something that would knock us out and, and get the, the bugs from the tree. He gives a fish scales and gills. It doesn't need lungs to breathe. It processes oxygen through the gills. And so his point is that God has different kinds of bodies that in his power and creativity, he has equipped to survive in the particular habitat he has designed for them. And then he goes on, 40 and 41. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So going on into the inanimate, non-living creation, there are different kinds of bodies. There are heavenly bodies that are different from earthly bodies. Heavenly bodies differ from each other. The sun and the stars are made to emanate light. They give out light. The moon doesn't give out light. It only comes out at night because it reflects the light of the sun. And other heavenly bodies reflect light. Each one is created and appointed by God for a particular function, and they are not all the same. And then he brings it together in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. You see, he's defending the manner of the resurrection of our bodies. How's God going to do this? How's God going to take the dust of, of our bodies and, and recreate something new? Well, he says, look, this is happening all the time. You're seeing seeds turn into plants, death resulting in life. And you're seeing all this variety of bodies living animals, birds and fish, non-living heavenly bodies, 
They're all different, and they're all created for a particular purpose, for a particular function in the purpose of God. And so he makes his point, so it will be with the resurrection of our bodies. And his point here is that the body that is to be is not going to be the same as our current body. Even as the plant is not like the little dry seed, the new body will be different from our present bodies. And he contrasts our new body with our present bodies in four ways, in verses 42 to 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown, some translations say, in corruption. These current bodies are corrupted in the sense that we're subject to disease, death, and destined to decay. That new body will be free from disease, free from death, free from decay. Corruption to incorruption. He goes on, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now, when we attend a funeral, we see that man does his best to give honor to the deceased. We have a fancy coffin. We adorn it with flowers. But you know, it's really dishonoring to the body because when we lower that casket in the grave, we know what's going to happen. That body's going to decay. It's going to become one with the soil. We try to treat it honorably, and we should, because God made it. But it's really dishonorable. These bodies are, are destined for the worms. They're destined to become one with the soil. It is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. That new body will be resplendent in brightness and radiance and shining and dazzling like the body of Jesus. Further, he says, it is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. These bodies are weak. We need rest. We need food. We need to be refreshed. When we're sick, we're weaker still. Jesus said the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. These bodies are weak. Now, the Greeks were very much into bodily training. They were into athletics. But it doesn't matter how well you train your body, how long it's subject to decay. Some of you men were athletes, and your body is not what it once was, is it? You can't do anything like what you once did. We cannot resist this tendency. We're dying. We're decaying. Our natural body is, is weak. I remember reading that because I, I was a runner, I still try to work out, keep in shape, but I remember reading, your wind capacity increases till age 40, and after that you decline. Your raw strength increases to 60, and then you decline. Uh, more than a decade past that one, too. You know, but the, you peak out with your strength in these areas, and then, then it's downhill from there. So our current bodies are weak, but these these. New bodies will be raised in power. And then finally, it will be sown a natural body. Sukikos. It will be raised a pneumatikos, a spiritual body. What does that mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. The spiritual man understands all things. The natural man is a man who doesn't understand the things of God. The spiritual man has the Spirit. And it could be that what he's saying is those new bodies will be totally controlled by the Spirit of God. Because now 
we are not. So Paul answers this objection to the resurrection that some have raised, that somehow this present body cannot yield a glorious new body. If God does this in the natural world all around us, why can't he do this with man in the resurrection? He has already ordained the universe with a variety of bodies, creating a plant from a mere seed and making all kinds of physical bodies. Then he is able to transform man into a glorious form different from his present beggarly form. And if we ask, what will that be like? What, talking about the discontinuity of our bodies, what will that new body be able to do? Well, we don't have a lot of information, but we have a hint by looking at the body of Jesus. Jesus suddenly appeared in the midst of his disciples. He was able to walk through walls. John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. He makes it a point to say the doors were closed. Jesus was there. In Luke 24, 36, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. These new bodies will be corporeal, but, but be able to walk through walls, I guess. And um, so there's a discontinuity. Those bodies will be far more glorious than our present bodies. But another thing about our resurrected bodies, there's also going to be continuity. This is my point in the manner of our resurrection bodies. Discontinuity, gloriously different from these present weak, corruptible bodies, but there will also be continuity. This is evident, first of all, from the very language of resurrection. You don't resurrect something that's out of existence, right? You may have something old in your, in your home that you want to redo, furniture or something. You, you, you resurrect it, but it, it's already there. Resurrection is not creation. Resurrection is taking something that already exists and making it better. So right there, there's continuity. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 and 53, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, and we will be changed. The we is still the same we. We're going to be changed, but it will be we who are changed. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, also there's a continuity when that change comes. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in, in the clouds to meet the Lord. And we shall always be with the Lord. We're going to be changed, but it's going to be we. You're going to be different, but it's still going to be you. And if we ask further, what does that continuity look like? There's discontinuity, but there's continuity. Well, again, we look at Jesus because his resurrected body is the prototype of ours. We're going to have a body like his. Was Jesus' body recognizable? It was. Remember when doubting Thomas came to Jesus and Jesus said, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Luke 24, 39, touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so we're going to be new, but we're still going to be you. That's a good way to put it. I hadn't thought of that. It's not in my notes. You're going to be new, but you're going to be you. If you want to remember it easily, you're going to be new, but you're going to be you. That's it with the manner of our resurrection. One more point, the necessity of the resurrection of our bodies. Why is it necessary that we don't just go to heaven as disembodied spirits, but one day we get resurrected bodies? Why is it necessary? First of all, the nature of man. 
When God made man in the beginning, he made him, as J. Adams used to say, a duplex being. We are body and soul. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. To be man as God made him, we must continue to be body and spirit. Now, at death, they are separated. The soul separates. It's wrenched from the body. But there must be reunion because God made us in the beginning as body and soul. We will live forever as body and soul. The nature of man demands it. The nature of our destiny demands that we have a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The other reason why there must be a resurrection body is we need a body suitable to that realm that glorious realm. We could not bear to be in the immediate presence of God with these present flesh and blood, weak, sinful, corruptible bodies. Just like every body is made for its particular sphere and function, we have these earthly bodies suitable to mortal life on earth to be in that glorious place and to behold the glory of the God who dwells in unapproachable light We need to be made new, even in our bodies. And so, there's a necessity that we have a new resurrected body. Well, in closing, what should we do with these truths? Well, as a preacher, I'm always looking for applications, but in this case, I don't have to look far because we can take Paul's own applications. Listen to how he ends this chapter about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of our bodies. At the end of chapter 15, there are two applications that we should take away, two ways we should live in light of the fact that we are going to be resurrected in our bodies someday. Look at verse 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our first response to this reality ought to be thanksgiving. Earlier in this chapter, he had said death is an enemy. It is the last enemy to be destroyed. But it's not wrong for us as Christians to view death as an enemy. When it comes to our loved ones as it has recently, to one of our families. And when it is coming soon to one of our church family members, it hurts, it's painful, it's an enemy. And when it comes to us and we know we're facing it, it's an enemy. And it can be a fearful thing to go down into that icy cold river to be experiencing for the first time and the only time 
the unnatural, ripping a part of our soul from our body, going into a realm we have never been before, and going there utterly alone. You're not going with your spouse, with your family, with your brethren, with your buddies. You're going alone. Our brother, Jim, as much as we are by his side, doing all we can to comfort him, he's facing that dark, cold hand of death alone. Death is an enemy. But the promise here is that that enemy has been swallowed up in victory. Why? Because Jesus allowed that enemy to swallow him up. But three days later, he broke the bands of death. He overcame death. He swallowed up death. The death that he allowed to swallow himself up. And he, no man took his life from him. He said, I lay it down on my own accord. He allowed death to swallow him up. But three days later, he swallowed up death, not only for himself, but for us who follow in his train. Because I live, you will live too. Because I swallowed up death by my resurrection, you will swallow up death as well by your resurrection. And so our first response is thank you, Lord, that our worst enemy has been swallowed up in victory. When you came to Christ, God delivered you from spiritual death and gave you spiritual life. If you die before Jesus comes, you will go into his immediate presence disembodied. But your ultimate victory will be to receive a new resurrected body on a new earth to serve him in that body forever and ever. Thanksgiving should be our, our perpetual heart disposition. It's what the Bible calls our blessed hope. But the second response is given by Paul in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and move. Therefore, okay? You have another, a therefore, right? Building on what goes, because of all the reality about the, the promised resurrection of your bodies. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What's the second application? Let's be steadfast and constant in doing the work of the Lord. As we anticipate death, as we anticipate the eventual resurrection of our bodies, let's be steadfast and constant in doing the work of the Lord. Let's abound in doing the work of the Lord. And in this chapter, as he goes on, he gives us some hints as to what that means, although there's much more. He goes on in chapter 16, now concerning the collection of this for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. One of the ways we serve the Lord and the kingdom is by giving to his kingdom's work, right? Which we do on the first day. That's why we have an offering. We give to promote the kingdom of God. Jumping down to verses 13 to 16, as he begins to close out the letter. What does it mean to abound in the work of the Lord? Well, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. But all that you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. 
Be steadfast, be immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord. And here he tells us further, here's a household of Stephanus, that they were devoted for the ministry to the saints. So as you live on the earth, in anticipation of going to be with the Lord upon death, and then living on a renovated earth with a new body under new heavens, what should you be doing? Serving the Lord, abounding in the work of the kingdom of God. You're going to an everlasting, eternal kingdom. Let's be about the work of the kingdom now. One more text in light of this. In Acts 24, 14 to 16, Paul speaks of his belief in the resurrection. He's giving defense as a Pharisee. Verse 24, 14, But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, these Pharisees who are accusing me, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Resurrection, by the way, is singular. In view of this, in view of the coming resurrection of righteous and wicked, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Another result of believing in the coming resurrection of your body is to be like Paul, maintain a good conscience toward God and toward all men. This in order to be of maximum service to the Lord in his church, but also for the sake of your witness to unbelievers. There's going to be a resurrection of the wicked. They're going to get new bodies, not to enjoy and worship the Lord on the new earth, but to suffer forever in that body in a place Revelation calls the lake of fire. That's where our loved ones who do not know Christ are going. That's where our neighbors and friends and co-workers are going. In light of that, maintain a good conscience so that you'll shine brightly as a light for Christ and as a witness even to the lost. But then I say, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, what is your hope? This is the Christian hope. We're going to die and go to heaven. And when Jesus comes, we're going to have new bodies on the new earth. That's our hope. That's our blessed hope. If you're not a believer in Jesus, what is your hope? I'll tell you what the Bible says is your destiny. It was read earlier by our brother Shane. Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, basically any unbeliever, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Friends, that's your destiny unless you turn and put your faith in Jesus. If you do, he will forgive you instantaneously. He will make you his child. He will change you. And he will destine you for heaven when you die in a glorified, resurrected body when he comes. Would you put your faith in Jesus now? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've told us. There's so much you haven't told us, but that's okay. You know what we need to know and what we don't. Thank you for the glorious hope that awaits all of your true children. We thank you in Jesus' name.